others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the Scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother Mary and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. 
So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Our Father and our God, we call upon You once again and we ask for a great outpouring of Your Holy Spirit upon us this evening. We ask that Your your Spirit would cause us to hear the voice of our Rabbi and Teacher, Jesus Christ, our great King. That we might hear His voice, that we might see His glory, that we might bask in His great love for us that was most clearly demonstrated when He gave His life a ransom for many. Glorify Christ among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our theme today, both this morning and this evening, has been the King crucified for you. The King crucified for you. And as we began to consider this morning, I, I gave the example of those psychology drawings, those ink drawings. They, they give those to you and they ask, what do you see? And depending on how you look at it, you might look at it from one angle and, and see someone or something very ugly. But then you look closer from another angle and you see something beautiful. And that's what John is inviting us to do here in the account of Christ's passion, His suffering, His humiliation. We are being invited to see that even in the midst of these humiliating events, these apparently tragic events, John is underlining for us that Jesus is no victim. And I pointed out to you how He does that with the repetition of a single word, the word King. He uses the word King twelve times, the word Kingdom three times. Fifteen times He underlines for us the sovereign rule and reign of Jesus Christ. That no one took His life from Him but as the King, He laid it down of His own accord. When we consider those apparently contradictory things that happened to Jesus, how He was arrested like a king. He was tried like a king. He was mocked as a king. He was proclaimed as king. He was disrobed as a king. And He cared like a king. But as we look at the remaining portion of this, the death of Jesus, we see this theme continue. We see these apparent contradictions because we see in verses 28 to 30 that Jesus dies like a king. 
He dies like a king. And again, the paradox of that statement should strike us because there's nothing more humiliating than death. Death strips human beings of all dignity. It renders us powerless. It shows us how weak we are. But not so with the death of Jesus. Jesus dies like a king. Again, John underlines for us the king's sovereign control over his death. We read in verse 28, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, In other words, this was not a surprise to Jesus. And He said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to His mouth. Again, I mentioned before our psalm reading that it's so helpful for us to understand uh, culture and background. And it's important for us, I think, to, to understand that a crucified person, a crucified person, for them, every breath was critical. And so for a crucified person to cry out, I thirst, would have been something unusual. And yet Jesus cried out, I thirst. And, and we are told that He did that in order to fulfill the Scriptures. Psalm 69.21 prophesied the King's thirst and how He would be given sour wine to drink. You'll notice our Psalter says vinegar. It would have been something like that. And you know vinegar would not quench your thirst. So we we should ask, why did the king cry out, I thirst? But more so, why was this a prophecy that Jesus from eternity highlighted and wants us to notice? Remember, every time we see something prophesied, that's like the Holy Spirit underlining or highlighting something and saying, notice this. Why is the king's thirst so significant? Why is it highlighted for us? It is because in the Old Testament, thirst is emblematic of being under the wrath and the covenant curse of God. And here the king thirsted with a physical thirst, but more than that, He thirsted for His Father's presence as He was abandoned by His Father. He thirsted for His Father's presence so that you and I may never thirst again. I pointed this out before that this really completes the the thirst motif in John's Gospel. Remember with the Samaritan woman. It's about water and thirst. And Jesus says, He who drinks of this water will never be thirsty again. In John 7, at the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus cried out with a loud voice 
and urged everyone who thirsted to come to Him and drink. And here, here we are shown how it is that we thirsty sinners can come to Him and never thirst again. But now look at verse 30. Look at verse 30. How does Jesus die? He dies like a king. When he had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. One of the tragic things with the church losing the significance of the Psalter in her life and her worship is that we lose so much of the life of Christ. And I, I would agree with the many theologians throughout church history who believe that on the cross Jesus made Psalm 22 His own prayer. The other Gospel writers tell us that He cried out with the first words of that psalm, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? But in the Hebrew, the last words of that psalm are not, He has done it. But the Hebrew reads, It is done. Jesus' final words were the final words of Psalm 22. And isn't it remarkable to think that Jesus from eternity past, through the Spirit, wrote a psalm as eternal God, that He knew that He would need as a man to strengthen Him as He suffered. And if the sinless Son of God needed a psalm in His suffering, how much more do we? He said, it is finished. And then John tells us that He bowed His head and like a king, He handed over His sinless, spotless life to His Father for you and for me. And one of the aspects of the passion of Christ that has really become precious to me as I have meditated upon it is how Jesus foretold this moment in John chapter 10. When he said that for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And again, it underlines for us the willingness, the willingness of our King to lay down His life for us. But more than that, it gives us this amazing glimpse into the relationship between the Father and the Son at the moment of His death. You see, we talk rightly about the fierce anger of the Father being poured out on the Son. But it is not right to say that the Father was angry with His Son. Because what Jesus 
tells us is that at the moment of his death, when he willingly handed over his spotless life to his father, that his father's love at that moment reached its full expression. It's as though the father in that moment, even as he he turned away from his son, even as he poured out his wrath on his son, was looking with love saying, that's my son. And the reason that has become so precious to me is because that should be our reaction when we look upon the dying Savior for us. That is where our love for Him should come to its full expression. That is where we should say, that is my Savior. That is my King. That is my Master whom I love. I wonder if you've ever thought about the fact that in verses 31 to 37 that somehow King Jesus fulfills prophecies after He dies. Only our King could do such a thing. John notes two of these significant Prophecies that are fulfilled and from a a human standpoint, what would seem like luck or chance, Jesus' bones are not broken. And John notes the fulfillment of this. Exodus 12.46, speaking of the Passover lamb, not one of his bones will be broken. And once again, John in Old Testament language and images is saying, do you see your King as the Passover Lamb? And just as our brothers and sisters so many years ago found shelter and refuge in their homes under the blood of their doorpost as the wrath and judgment of God passed through and they found shelter from that wrath. John is saying, find shelter, find refuge in the true Passover Lamb. And then for for the second prophecy to be fulfilled, the first one had to be fulfilled. And John notes how one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. And our King, even after His death, fulfilled Zechariah 12.10. And that verse says, When they look on Me, on Him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for Me. But if you keep reading in Zechariah, you read into chapter 13, you, you see that the mourning, that mourning over sin is never the end point of us, for us. Because Zechariah goes on, to foretell a day when there will be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. He dies like a king. 
No one took his life from him, but he laid it down of his own accord. And that should cause our hearts to well up in gratitude when we realize that each and every one of us, if you are in Christ, you were on his heart and his mind as he willingly gave his life for you. So he dies like a king, and then we see, amazingly, he is buried like a king. He's buried like a king. And again, kind of like death, the, the grave is it's humiliating. The grave is the wages of sin. It displays our weakness, our, our sin, our limitations. We feel this at, at funerals or, or burials. To see the body of a person who was once a strong, productive, talented man or woman laying dead in a grave, it's humiliating. But to free us from that shame, from that humiliation, from our sin, Jesus had to descend to the lowest of the low. And He went into the grave for us. And again, we see one of those beautiful paradoxes, the grave, which is so humiliating for Jesus, is at the same time a moment of His glory and exaltation. Because John shows us that He is buried like a king. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53.6 He made His grave with the wicked on the cross, but He's with a rich man in His death. Now that's a whole sermon to think about how, how amazing it is that that prophecy is fulfilled. But it is shown to us here that Jesus was laid in a king's tomb. Verse 41, In the garden... There was a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Now that was highly unusual. No one got their own tomb. And again, if you know anything about the geography of Palestine, real estate is at a premium. You know who got their own tomb? Kings. Only kings got a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Jesus, the Holy One, is laid in a holy tomb or a virgin tomb. This led a man named Christopher Ness to say, when Christ was born, He lay in a virgin's womb. And when He died, He was placed in a virgin tomb. And we are told here how Joseph provided the king's tomb, but Nicodemus helped with the king's burial. We're told that he brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes about 75 pounds in weight. Do you know what the estimated cost of those spices would have been? Over $200,000. This was how you buried a king. 
Not too long after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the great Rabbi Gamaliel died. And at his funeral, a man named Onkelos burned 75 pounds of spices to honor him. And he was asked, why would you do that? Again, it seems like such a waste. Why would you do that? And his answer was, is not the rabbi far better than a thousand kings? And that's the point here. Is not Jesus, our rabbi, far better than a thousand kings? Is not the king of kings worthy of such a burial? And you'll notice here how it's shown to us that both of these men, Nicodemus and Joseph, were secret disciples. Joseph was a disciple of Jesus secretly for fear of the Jews. And then there's this little statement about Nicodemus who had earlier come to Jesus by night. It's John's way of saying he was fearful too. And isn't it remarkable that these men, having seen the dying love of the King, now by taking part in Jesus' burial, were secret disciples no more. They saw the glory and the beauty and the value of the King. And they were willing to give up everything, to pay whatever cost, to be His disciple. And I think we need to hear that. Because we are living in a time where it seems like every day, every day the pressure against us as followers of Jesus Christ is increasing. And with that increasing pressure comes the temptation to be secret disciples. What's the remedy for that? What's the remedy for that fear of man? It is the cross. It is looking upon the King who gave His life for us, where we will see His beauty, His majesty, His infinite worth. Trusting that He is the one who will give us courage. And as we see His great love for us, we see His great worth. Like Joseph and Nicodemus, we will be willing to give up everything for His sake. Now as we close, I want to go backward a bit in John's account. I want you to just look at the end of chapter 18. Pilate gives the crowd a choice. He brings out before them Jesus and this man named Barabbas who was a robber or an insurrectionist who was seeking to overthrow Rome. And and some of you may be aware of this, but I think it's worth highlighting because it is an amazing stroke of divine providence. Do you know what Barabbas' name would be if we just translated it into English? Son of the Father. 
Son of the Father. Get the choice there. Barabbas, Son of the Father, and Jesus, the Son of the Father. And I think for John, there's significance in this. Because they chose Barabbas. Barabbas was promising to them a kind of salvation. Salvation from Roman rule and Roman tyranny. And they chose Him over the Son of the Father. And I think that exposes us and how all too often we are looking to other saviors other than Jesus. We're looking to be delivered from other things and not delivered from our sin. Who is your Savior this evening? Is it a a Son of the Father or is it the Son of the Father? Congregation, as you step in to a new phase, a new stage as a congregation. You have many changes that are coming. I want to remind you and exhort you that the greatest danger for you is not that you don't find a building. It's not that you find a building that needs a lot of work or it has mold in it or we have to rent for longer than anticipated. The great danger for you is not that you don't find a pastor. The greatest danger is that you lose sight of your King. We are plagued with distractions. Things that are important. And we can all too easily lose sight of our great King. This isn't your church. This was never my church. This is Christ's church. He is the King and Head of it. And like we read in that psalm, He will make sure that you are established, firm, and secure. And so I exhort you one last time as your pastor. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Behold your King. Hold fast to Him. Love Him. Worship Him. He is your King. And He will care for you with His power and His goodness. And He will never let you go. Father in Heaven, We thank You. We thank You for Your glorious Gospel. We thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and on the third day, risen from the grave. And we pray, O God, that we might look to our ascended and enthroned King, And Lord, that by seeing His rule and His reign, by seeing His dying love for us, that we might be assured and comforted. That we might know that even though we don't understand 
the events that You bring to us, Lord, may we be assured that You love us and that You will never leave us or forsake us. Lord, we pray that You might increase our love for the Savior. And Lord, I do with great trust and confidence commit Your people here at Springs Reformed Church into Your hands and to Your care, knowing that You love the church more than any mere man could. We pray all of this for the glory of the great King Jesus. Amen.